Let me begin this morning by just asking a very simple question. It's not a profound question, but it is introspective to some degree. And that is, do you want your life to matter for the kingdom of God? I mean, is that a desire that you have? I mean, do you really want your life, the life that was created by God, redeemed by the blood of Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, do you want that life to, in the end, matter in some kind of real and profound way? Do you want to be a man or a woman that so lives your life based upon your Christian conviction that you inevitably leave behind a legacy of such a profound standing, the world you pass on retains the influence you brought to bear? Is this the kind of life that you want to live, a life that matters? If this is the case, and I think for most of us, we have that desire, you need to understand something And I'll say it as honestly as I can. And that is the fact that if you want your life to matter, church history will attest the great price a life lived in such a way will be required to satisfy. Looking back over the millennia, looking back over church history, looking back at scripture itself, few saints have ever fulfilled such a desire for their life to matter without incurring significant personal costs for the sake of the race set before them. During the 16th and 17th centuries, as a direct result of their views on the nature of baptism, mainly the rejection of infant baptism, a group within Christianity known as the Anabaptists were heavily persecuted by not just the Catholic Church, but also Protestant churches. As a known Anabaptist, Dirk Wilhelms of Holland was arrested and set to be tried as an Anabaptist for preaching heresy. And knowing the unlikely fate this would, this would bear, the brutal execution, Dirk broke out of prison. And running for his life with the authorities in hot pursuit, it was only a frozen pond that stood between him and his inevitable freedom. Now, maciated from the loss of weight, from being incarcerated, Dirk had no problems getting across the frozen pond. But the authorities, in hot pursuit, this man wasn't so lucky. Legend has it that he slipped through the ice and was going to die. Dirk now had a decision. And while a lesser man would have refused to turn back, Dirk waded into the hypothermic water and dragged his pursuer to safety. And in spite of his compassion, preferring this man's life over that of his own, he was returned to prison. And he was interrogated and tortured in an effort to get him to recant his faith. Now, though the punishment for being an Anabaptist was burning at the stake, those who were recanted were given, you know, the more compassionate form of execution just by being beheaded. And Lutheran and Zwinglian states, Anabaptists, were executed by just being drowned to death. Because Dirk refused to recant his beliefs, he stood on his conviction, the truth of God's word, having been rebaptized himself, of holding secret meetings in his home, and of allowing baptisms to occur there, Dirk was found guilty. On May 16, 1569, the authorities brought Dirk into the public square to be burned to death. Now, what occurs next is not for the squeamish. It's it's actually horrifying. 
For as the flames began to engulf the timbers that surrounded Dirk, the wind, it blew the flames away from his person. This meant instead of being executed in in a swift manner, the fire instead just simmered beneath him. It turned an already barbaric form of execution into something excruciating. Time and again, the audience present heard him scream out in pain, but also heard him cry out in worship. One of the authorities that was present could no longer bear his suffering to the point that he ordered an underling to run him through with a spear, providing him a quick death. Now, while Dirk is but one example of a man who paid the ultimate price for Christ, and, and let's be honest, while what might required for the American 21st century Christian might not nearly be as severe as in times past or in other places of the world, never forget, and this is important, friend, that the reality of history illustrates the high cost this fallen world demands of a man or woman who wants to leave behind a meaningful Christian legacy. As Paul continues his travels in Acts 16, we will see yet another example of what it takes and what many of us can expect when we seek to have our lives count for the kingdom. Paul would stand for Christ, would stand for the unchanging truth of his word, and he would pay the penalty for it. Now let's set some context before we get to verse 9. We left off with verse 8. Paul, he's in the midst of his second missionary journey. And whereas he began this journey with a clear course of action, we're told that Paul set out with the desire to revisit the churches that he had previously planted during his first missionary journey as he now seeks to move from the region of Galatia into new uncharted territories. Something weird occurs. It would seem from the text that as he's beginning to deviate now from his plan, he's got no clue where to go. He doesn't know where the Spirit wants him to go. He, he tries to go this direction. The Spirit stops him, resists him. He tries to go another direction. The Spirit resists him, stops him again. He wants to move out of Galatia, but he doesn't know where to go. He's rebuffed by the Spirit of God each way he turns. So, realizing he can't travel east, he simply decides to now turn west, heading to the port city of Troas. So where we are is Paul is in Troas, He's unsure what the next step is. He doesn't know where he's going. He doesn't know what the Lord would have for him. He knows where the Lord doesn't want him to go. But where the next step is, Paul is uncertain, which is, to me, kind of encouraging. Like in this this journey of following Christ, the Apostle Paul was sometimes at a loss. Sometimes the Apostle Paul sat back and was like, I have no idea what to do. And if Paul would find himself in those situations, it's not abnormal for us to also find ourselves in those situations. But always know that a heart desiring to be led by the Lord will be led by the Lord. For we're told in verse 9, a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood pleading with him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. So here we have Paul. He's awaiting some type of direction, directives, instructions, commands, anything from the Lord. He's in Troas, chilling out, just waiting. 
Which, by the way, on a side note, and this isn't in the notes, but I feel compelled to, to advise. If you don't know what the Lord wants you to do, if you're faced with a decision and you don't have a piece for door one or door two to go right or to go left, you can never go wrong just being patient. If you don't know where to go, you, sometimes it's just the best thing to just stay put. On your own, do a word study of how often the psalmist would cry out to, to, to wait, for his heart to wait upon the Lord. And this is what Paul's doing in Troas. He doesn't know where to go, so he's waiting. He's chilling out, and in the night, he gets this vision of a man of Macedonia. This would be modern-day Greece, who's pleading with him, literally begging him to come and to help. And it's in this moment, I I'm convinced that it was like a light bulb goes off. You ever had those moments like you don't know what to do and something happens, a vision occurs, and just this light bulb, just everything gains clarity immediately. And I think this is what happened for Paul. You see, Paul in this moment, knowing that the Spirit had resisted him going to Asia, not sure why, getting this vision from a man of Macedonia, Paul realizes, wait, the Spirit didn't want me to go to Asia because the Spirit wanted me to take the message of the gospel into the heart of the Roman Empire. This is a significant moment in your travels through not just the book of Acts, not just the New Testament, but Scripture at large, because what's happening here is for the first time, Christianity is going intercontinental. Greece, Paul will jump from what's known as Asia Minor, after previously being in what's known as the Middle East, to now moving into Europe. So we're told, verse 10, that after he had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Somathrace, and the next day came to Neapolis, and from there Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we stayed in that city for some days. Convinced he now has marching orders from the Lord, Paul wastes no time getting after it. We're told immediately we sought to go. I don't know if he waited for the morning or he woke everybody up and they moved in the middle of the night. But what we do know is that from Troas, Paul, Silas, who joined him in Antioch, Timothy, who they picked up in Lystra, and now Luke, sailed to Thomatrace. Did you, did you notice a, a weird change in the vernacular? A, a new pronoun was introduced in the passage we read. We we're introduced to this, this idea of we now being interjected into the narrative, which would mean that our author, Dr. Luke, has joined this second missionary journey in Troas. And we should ask ourselves, why would Luke join Paul in Troas? Now, while his own writings provide us few autobiographical details of Luke, early church fathers taught that Luke was a Gentile who was an integral part of the church that was located in Syrian Antioch. Now, since this was also Paul's home church, the base of his missionary operations, we can obviously make the relational connection there. When we read of Paul being in Antioch before this passage, it's not abnormal or out of the realm of possibility to see Luke being present. We have the connection. But we're still left with the question, the idea of why would Luke join Paul now 
like in the middle of this missionary endeavor. You know, we've mentioned it in other places in our travels through Acts, but aside from being a gifted author and historian, Luke was a physician. Colossians 4 verse 14, Paul actually describes him as the beloved physician. Though it's only conjecture, it may very well be, and scholars speculate, that what prohibited Paul from traveling into Asia the two times he attempted was some type of chronic medical issue that made traveling into these regions impossible. Some speculate that Paul actually goes to Troas, knowing that it's the closest port city to where he is, with the desire to send for Luke, the physician, to come to his aid. Not wanting to bail on the missionary journey, being in Troas, at this point not knowing where to go anyway, it's likely Paul sends word to have Luke come and minister to him. Either way, regardless. From Troas, this crew of four, Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, they sailed to this island port of Somatrace before heading onward to Neapolis. And then from Neapolis, we're told they proceed a few miles inland to the city of Philippi, which was kind of the capital of this region known as Macedonia. I hope the map helps you contextualize it all, see it. Now, originally founded in 356 BC by Philip of Macedonia, the city of Philippi would, well, for lack of a better phrase, become the villages. It would become a retirement community for Roman soldiers. Military veterans would retire to this area of Philippi. I'm sure Arnold Palmer had golf courses galore. Now, as a result of its strong Roman presence, the city was officially dubbed a Roman colony. We were told this in our text. And as a result of being a Roman colony or an extension of Rome itself, money flowed into the city for all types of renovations. As such, Philippi, and this will play itself out as we continue through Acts 16, it was placed, the city, under the municipal law of Rome and was directly governed by two military officers who were appointed by the Roman Senate. That's context for later. Verse 13, well, on the Sabbath day, so they've arrived to Philippi. We're told that they went out to the city, to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. Luke says, and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now, a certain woman named Lydia's, Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. Since on the Sabbath day, Paul and the crew don't automatically go to the local synagogue, which was their custom, but instead, we're told, go out of the city by the riverside where prayer was customarily made, we can conclude that there was a minimal Jewish community in Philippi. As a matter of fact, we're given the indication the only representation was this group of women who met for prayer. So Paul, Silas, Timothy, Luke, they go down. They begin to share the gospel to these women. Luke tells us that among them, a certain woman named Lydia heard us, whom, Luke continues by saying, the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. Now, while most assume that Lydia was of Jewish descent, 
I'm actually more inclined to, to believe that Lydia was a Gentile proselyte for two simple reasons. First, the passage doesn't say she's Jewish, and her name, Lydia, is actually of Greek origin. And secondly, Luke tells us that she was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira. This city was known for its, its dyeing. It was known for its manufacturing of cloth. Purple was that of royalty. They specialized in the indigo trade, and she was from this particular city. Now, in ancient Rome, there was an interesting dichotomy when it came to women's rights. If you were a slave, you had no rights at all. But in Rome, if you were freeborn, if you were a Roman citizen, you were eligible for, well, citizenship. Though women, even as a citizen, weren't allowed to vote, and they weren't allowed to hold political office, women from powerful families did possess a measure of economic freedom. It is likely that Lydia was a Roman citizen from a wealthy family of Thyatira who was in Philippi to sell fabric to the nobility living there. We're told that she not only worshiped God, but upon hearing the things spoken by Paul, the Lord opened her heart to receive the message of the gospel. Given the idea that Lydia converted, she became a Christian. Now, there are two observations that jump out at me about this particular text. First, as I look at Lydia, as I look at Luke's description here, I can't help but note that it's possible for a person to worship God without having a real relationship with God, but impossible for a person to know God and not be compelled to worship him. And confronting the Pharisees, Jesus would say in Mark 7, verses 6 and 7, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and, look at it, in vain they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Please understand, and you got to track with me because this is kind of a complex idea, but a spiritual life based primarily on the activity of worshiping God can be a very dangerous and misleading reality. And let me explain why. Anyone can worship God. Anyone can enjoy the emotional and spiritual experience of the act of worship itself without actually knowing God because all humanity was created with the natural compulsion to worship the creator. Now, many of us reject that compulsion, resist that compulsion, but we all, as created beings, have a desire like the birds chirp to worship God with the sunrise, so do we. Every person have within us this inclination to worship. The problem is that this experience, the experience of worship for this person while real, may only be superficial, base, or non-substantive. And yet, when a person enters into a relationship with God through his son Jesus, worship moves beyond this basic compulsion with the experience now deepening as their relationship with God and therefore knowledge of God increases. Knowing God spawns a substantive expression and a deeper, more meaningful worship experience. This is why the teaching of God's word 
should always be the emphasis of the church and not particularly the worship experience alone. When the church focused chiefly on a person's experience through the activity of worship, it does something very dangerous. It blurs the line between that base expression as a spiritual being and the one we find yielded by a genuine relationship with God. For many people, the experience of worshiping God may actually end up being the closest to God they'll ever come. However, when the church emphasizes the teaching of God's word, the worship experience that the believer has deepens. Why? Because it's not based in something base, but something real, tangible, a growing relationship with the living God. Never forget, the experience of worshiping God becomes all the more radical and real when it's coupled with a vibrant relationship with God through his word. Lydia is described as a worshiper of God, but she didn't know the God she was worshiping. That's a dangerous place to be. Now, the second observation that jumps out at me from the text is that while it's our job to share the gospel, It's God's job to save the soul. The passage is clear that as Paul shared the good news, spoke with these ladies, that something tangible happened, occurred, spawned in Lydia's life. And this took place for one reason and one reason alone. Luke tells us that she has this experience because the Lord opened her heart. Now, admittedly, there are those who seek to use a verse like this to make the case for what we would call Reformed theology, or more commonly known as Calvinism. And yet, I challenge this stance on this verse, because in context, Luke seems to be using the phrase to describe the result of what took place in the life of Lydia, and not the reason. I don't think it's unreasonable for us to conclude that as Lydia listened to what Paul had to share, that her heart was stirred to faith. Romans 10 verse 17 tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And then it was in response to the saving faith taking place in her heart from the preaching of God's word that the Lord opened her heart so that she might heed the things that Paul was speaking about. Now, this is consistent with what Jesus would say in John 6, 44. Jesus said very clearly that no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him or her. So there is no doubt that the Holy Spirit was using the words, the message of Paul, to draw Lydia to Jesus, to woo her. That said, I think it's hermeneutically flawed to make the case that the Lord opened her heart independent of her belief and faith in Jesus. I don't think the text implies such a thing. Yes, salvation is impossible apart from this miraculous work of God opening a person's heart to receive. But I challenge you, provide me an instance where God works in such a way without or independent of the individual's involvement. The passage, How did, what does the passage imply? Paul was speaking, right? Speaking to these ladies, Lydia believed and God supernaturally worked. 
And you know, this has a profound and, and in many ways, a very freeing application or implication. Okay, it's your job to share the gospel with those you come in contact with. That's your responsibility as a witness. It's something that should naturally come out of your life. And for most of us, there are people that aren't believers. We know they're not believers. And we know by looking at their life, by seeing what God has done for us, we know so desperately how Jesus can satisfy something that they're longing for. Like we see it and we know it and we're moved to reach them and to speak to them. And sometimes we're rejected and that can be so frustrating. But you should keep in mind, well, two things. First, you can't shove the word of God down someone's throat. It's impossible. You can't save them. You can't force it. It has to be something that they choose. You have the responsibility, without a doubt, to speak. And God has the responsibility to work, and oh, he's faithful to do so. But it is the responsibility of the individual hearer to believe. But we're told that when Lydia and her household, I love that, her faith was contagious, she gets saved and she goes home and tells everybody else about what Jesus has done in her heart. The idea is that they're all saved. We're told that they were baptized and Lydia then begged us, saying, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. She's a pretty good salesman, isn't she? So she persuaded us. And it happened that as we went to prayer, a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And she did this for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. So here you have Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke staying at the house of Lydia. Lydia's home becomes their base of operation. It housed this new infant church. Now, whether they went to prayer every Sabbath or this common meeting spot simply became you know, a public place for evangelism, we don't really know. The text doesn't tell us. But what we do know for sure is that why the crew is going to this spot to preach to the people that are of the city, they're hounded by a slave girl, a certain one, possessed with this spirit of divination. And this gal, she cried out constantly as they're making their way around town that these men were servants of the Most High God who proclaimed to us the way of salvation. Now, the Greek word girl, it indicates that she was really nothing more than a young damsel. She was a little girl. Tragic, right? Here you have this little girl who's a slave to men. The system. We're told that she, she brought them much profit by fortune-telling. And she's also a slave to Satan for she's possessed with this demon. Now, on a side note concerning demons and this idea of fortune-telling, 
demons are created beings, which means that they don't have the ability to foretell the future, to see the future. Demons are restricted to what we would call the time continuum. Only God sees the the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. Demons are very much trapped in this moment as you and I are. However, because they are spiritual beings, demons, while restricted to the time continuum, are free to move around the space continuum. This means that what might appear to be fortune-telling might actually be really insightful pronostication since demons have, well, the benefit of greater insight. So demons see more of what's happening in your life or the life of those around you. A demon might be able to say, your wife is going to leave you because that demon knows your wife is cheating on you. You might not be privy to it, but the demon is because they're in the spiritual realm. They can see certain things. So this young gal, this damsel, couldn't actually foretell. She couldn't see the future, but she was really good at predicting it, which became very profitable. Beyond this, while she may have had the right message, I mean, you got to give her, I guess, a little bit of credit. Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke were servants of the Most High God, and they were in Philippi for what reason? To proclaim the way of salvation. That was their whole purpose in coming. While she might have had the right message, she was the wrong messenger. I mean, this was not the kind of PR that Paul appreciated. The, the, the phrase that she cried out is the Greek word karazo. It means to croak out. It describes the cry of a raven. And not only was she doing this, she was doing it for many days. Like, how long is many days? <laughs> like, how long does this go on? We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But what is clear is things reach such a boiling point that Paul has had enough. Like he's pulling out his hair. He's banging his head up against the wall. He can't take it anymore. She's greatly annoyed. And so he does what anyone greatly annoyed by a demon-possessed young girl does. He casts the demon out of the young girl. Like the language here indicates that Paul actually was resisting dealing with the situation until he could no longer stand it. Now, that leads us to a question, right? Like, why would God have Paul wait or even hesitate when it comes to ministering to this young girl who's a slave to man and a slave to Satan? I mean, clearly, like, God would have wanted to liberate her. And yet, in his foreknowledge, God also knew what the results would be from liberating this young girl. What would happen, the reaction that would take place within Philippi. Without the ability to tell the future, this young damsel would have no longer been of value to her masters, which would have brought down some heat upon Paul and this missionary crew. I think God desired all along for Paul to minister to this young gal, but they were waiting, which is interesting because this tells me that Paul made a decision. It was a tough decision, but Paul waited because he had to prioritize ministry. 
Like Paul recognized that there was a work that needed to happen in Philippi. This young church needed some stability. Lydia and her friends needed them there to be cared for. Paul knowing that as soon as he deals with this girl, all bets are off. Paul's done this long enough to know that if he intervenes in this young girl's dynamic, her situation, that he is going to kick the hornet's nest. And he realizes that I've got to, I've got to wait for a little while. I've got to wait. Now, I've found that there are times that Satan will intentionally present us with a ministry opportunity for the specific purpose of deterring us from the greater work God has called us to. As anyone who's ever served the Lord in any type of capacity can attest, there really are annoying people that walk into a church possessed with so many issues that we can allow that one person to so dominate our time that the greater work of the ministry gets ignored. The minister has to have wisdom. We can't minister to everyone. We have to pick and choose, and sometimes that requires the tough calls of prioritizing. And yet, on the flip side of that, I've also found that there are times, and I spent 10 years doing middle school ministry, so this happened most in middle school ministry, but I have found that there are times when that one person, that one kid that walks into your youth ministry that so absolutely annoys you that the only ministry you want to do in that kid's life is the right hand or right foot of fellowship. That it's in annoying you that that's the Lord's way of kind of telling you that that's the person you should be focusing on. I call it a divine annoyance. I'm going to minister to you because you annoy me to death and if I don't help you work through your issues, you're going to kill us all. So I have to focus on you for a little while. So how can you tell the difference between the annoying person possessed with so many issues that you have to kind of like, I love you, I'm here for you, but I, I got other things to prioritize right now versus the annoying person that their very annoyance is God's way of saying, yep, Paul had a thorn in the flesh, and that person is yours. It happens. How do you know? How can you differentiate the two? <laughs> we need the Holy Spirit, because I don't know. Verse 19. But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities and when this happened, they said, these men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city. They teach customs which are not lawful to us, being Romans, to receive or observe. When her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, Paul definitely had some insight, didn't he? He knew when it happened that it had to be the right time. But this, this phrase, that when they saw that their hope of profit was gone, this girl is freed from a possessing spirit, and they're more concerned with their profit. Like, can you find a better example for how the world views the people trapped in its rat race? Like, these men cared more about what they could get out of this poor girl than they did for her overall well-being. 
Have you ever felt that way at work? And the way that this world operates? That the world cares more what it can suck from you than your well-being, your benefit? I mean, who cares if she was possessed? Who cares if she was tormented? As long as it benefited them, brought them a profit. You see, not only had Jesus liberated her from the clutches of the devil, but he had done something else, hadn't he? He had also freed her from being a slave of man. And how did he do it? By making her a child of God. I hope you realize, as Bob Dylan once sang, everybody's got to serve somebody. Which, by the way, if you complain about the young references, I just threw you a Bob Dylan reference, so I'm trying to be all things to all men here. Bob Dylan, singing, song, everybody's got to serve somebody. Bob Dylan, worst singer on the planet. But Bob Dylan, he made an interesting observation, right? He says, everybody's got to serve somebody. It might be the Lord, it might be the devil, but you're going to serve someone. Everyone has a master. Let me ask you, who would you rather have as a master? Who would you rather serve? Jesus, who loved you enough to willingly lay down his life for you? No greater love demonstrates than that. Or the devil, whose scripture tells us only purposes for you are to steal from you, kill you, and destroy you. Or what about the world? You're going to serve someone. Who would you rather serve? It's important we keep in mind what's taking place in this passage. Because it really does mark a moment that would change the world forever. Like if not for Paul being obedient to not go into Asia and bring the gospel into Europe, the case can be made that Western civilization, America, wouldn't ever existed it would look radically different. Paul's life and his ministry here in Philippi was revolutionary. I mean, you want to talk about someone who made an impact, someone who left the world still feeling the results, the effects of the life he had lived for Jesus? I mean, Paul is everything we would want, right? We look at Paul, we say, other than Jesus, no one changed the world like Paul. No one, and yet, it came at a cost, didn't it? He's in Philippi, bringing the gospel to Europe. Western civilization exists because of this moment, and no one claps for him. No one throws him a ticker tape parade. No one gives a rip. It came at a cost. (laughs) They seized them dragged them into the marketplace. They accused them of exceedingly troubling our city by teaching customs, which are not lawful for us as Romans to receive or observe. A violent opposition coupled with an unfounded allegation. We're told the multitude rose up against them. The magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded that they be beaten with rods. Wait a second, there would have been no hospitals if not for what Paul's doing here in Philippi. Freeing people from slavery came as a result of Christianity's effects on the Western world. He changed things, democracy. 
the freedom of religion. And yet they beat him. And when they had laid many stripes, they threw them into the prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, we're told that he does just this. He throws them into the inner prison and fastens their feet in the stocks. Why was Paul in Philippi? I mean, is there any doubt, any question that Paul was in Philippi because God had sent him? I mean, God had sent Paul to Philippi, had gone to extraordinary like uh, attempts, effects, to move him in this direction, right? No doubt in anyone's mind, Paul's in Philippi because that's where the Lord wanted him there. Why was he preaching the gospel? God had told him to do that as well. See, aside from the fact that what Paul would start in Philippi would revolutionize the world, at this point, keep in mind, what has Paul done? Like, what's his only crime here? He's ministered to a group of women down by the river, right? And what else has he done? Freed a demon-possessed girl. Like, that's all he's done. And what does he get in return? The beating of his life, he's thrown into prison, and his feet are fastened in the stocks. (laughs) Okay, let's go back to the beginning. You want your life to matter to impact the kingdom, to impact this world, to be used by God in a very real and tangible way. You want to make an impact? Are you sure? Have you counted the cost? Because it will cost you something. A.W. Tozer wrote, to be right with God has often meant to be in trouble with men. And it is true. The world looks none too kindly upon a man or a woman really living a life for Jesus Christ. You know, I know we live in America, the land of the free, the home of the brave. We live in a country founded upon our our ability to worship God, to gather without fear of persecution. For the last 300 plus years, The church has been allowed to exist in an incubation chamber. And while I am very thankful for that and very grateful for that, the byproduct is that it has lulled us into a false realization because it doesn't cost us much to follow Christ. And you know the result of that? is many of us don't fully follow Christ. Many of us, if we were really honest, live lives that are wishy-washy, that are fake, that are hypocritical. Charles Spurgeon, he wrote this. He said, never did the church so prosper and so truly thrive as when she was baptized in the blood. Not just the blood of Christ, but he continues by saying, the ship of the church never sails so gloriously along as when the bloody spray of her martyrs falls upon her deck 
We must suffer and we must die if we are ever to conquer this world for Christ. Have you counted the cost? Have you weighed it? Like this morning, if you get anything from the text, because next Sunday we'll look at what the Christian response should be to these things. But the first thing we've got to consider, what if it changes? Do you not feel tides of change even in America? Do you not sense the restriction of our freedom, the persecution of what I will call literacy? I've heard this. People are now beginning to, to equate what we find within radical Islam within Christianity because people are crazy if they believe that this is literal. See, understand, the persecution will come for those who are fundamental, for those who believe that God has spoke and we are to obey. Are you ready? And beyond the, the, the big issues, the peripheral issues, place it in context to what you're going through, the persecution that you face. Place that in context with history, with your brothers and sisters today in other parts of the world where their lives are weighed in the balance. Jesus didn't sugarcoat what following him was to be. In John 15, verse 20, he says, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will also persecute you. This morning, when you weigh the costs, please consider two things. Everyone serves somebody. And secondly, what Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17. And when you place this statement in context to this event, he says, but for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working in us, for us, a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, in his famed classic, The Cost of Discipleship, he wrote, and this is true, and this is how we'll leave this morning's study. But he says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Have you counted the cost? Because there is a cost if you want your life to matter. And so, Father, with that heavy word, we just allow that to settle into our hearts.